evening. Can you do you want no? Can you hear me? Okay. Good evening. I'm Mary Morris of the Pan American Center, and thank you for coming to this evening's event. Um, I'm going to introduce the event and then turn it over to our main speakers. Last week, a friend and I crossed the Badlands of South Dakota, a Martian-like landscape covered with spires of orange and pink, purple and green that jut up like churches or castles. And then we drove into the Indian Reservation at Pine Ridge. The reservation is rolling grasslands, miles of it, with almost nothing except fences and roads. When you drive through, you can almost imagine the herds of buffalo and the Lakota who hunted them a hundred years ago. But that is nostalgia. While the reservation seems beautiful, bucolic, almost peaceful, things are not at all what they seem. This became apparent en route to the reservation at the bar at Scenic, the Longhorn Saloon, which Peter Matheson describes in his book, In the Spirit of Crazy Horse, a bar which still has the now antique 1906 sign out front, No Indians Allowed. The Longhorn was full of Indians, as were all the bars that lined the reservation. No bars are allowed on the reservation. The illusion of peacefulness at Pine Ridge was also apparent as we drove through towns like Wanbley or Kyle or Wounded Knee or Oglala or Pine Ridge itself. But the poverty and sense of boredom and tedium sneak up on you. The towns on the reservation consist mainly of battered trailers, abandoned cars, and government track housing. Many of the track houses are boarded up Windows are broken, rubbish stands outside, usually in the form of bits of tire, pipe, discarded wood. But what I noticed most as we drove through these communities were the faces of people, men and women of Pine Ridge, staring out from the windows of these government track houses, not watching anything in particular, just staring from their windows as we drove through the land of Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse was the chief of the Lakota who refused to surrender or sign treaties with the white man. He said he needed no one between himself and the Great Spirit. He was a free man, and he died, bayoneted in the back, a free man. Crazy Horse never permitted himself to be photographed. He did not want to give up his spirit to the white man's box. It has always struck me as a kind of supreme irony that last year the 13-cent postcard postage stamp in this country displayed the face of the never-photographed crazy horse. Peter Matheson, in his work of nonfiction, In the Spirit of Crazy Horse, documents the history of the American Indians at Pine Ridge from, 1880, from 1833 and the arrival of the white prospectors through the events that led to the shooting on June 26, 1975, and the death of two FBI agents. He documents the largest FBI manhunt in history, the arrests and trials of various suspects, including Leonard Peltier, who remains today in prison. Matheson's book places the events of June 26, 1975, in their proper historic and social perspective. 
The history of the American Indians is a history of unkept treaties and betrayals, broken promises and massacres. In 1868, with the signing of the Fort Laramie Treaty, Indians were their land west of the Cheyenne, the sacred Black Hills, only to see this treaty rescinded a few years later when gold was discovered in the Black Hills. Much of the struggle of the Lakota in the past century has been an effort to gain recognition of the Fort Laramie Treaty. It was their land claims and the abuses of their human rights that led to the incident at Wounded Knee in 1972. In recent years, as Matheson shows, a new kind of gold has been discovered on Indian lands, uranium, and new efforts have been made to take the land away. This is the background of Peter Matheson's book. We are not here today to discuss the persecution and abuses, the violations of human rights, and all the misdeeds done for more than a century to the American Indian. We are here to discuss the question of libel, the lawsuits which led the Viking press to cease sales and terminate subsidiary sales of Peter Matheson's book. Penn, after all, is an organization whose concern is with free expression and with freedom to write. On the other hand, it seemed impossible to those of us who put together this event to separate the issue of libel and the fate of In the Spirit of Crazy Horse from the fate of the American Indians. In the Spirit of Crazy Horse is a profoundly political book, and it is a book about abuses of human rights. As Peter Matheson writes, quote, for all our talk about suppression of human rights in other countries, and despite nostalgic sentimentality about the noble red man, the prejudice and persecution still continue. We are here tonight to discuss the various factors that cause the suppression of In the Spirit of Crazy Horse and to see how the suppression of this book has affected the American Indian, to see if, in fact, the suppression of a book does not also reflect the suppression of a people. We are grateful to have with us tonight Peter Matheson, who will discuss his book, Martin Garbus, the respected attorney, and Oren Lyon. Peter Matheson is a well-known author and environmentalist. You have all this on the back of your programs. He's published five novels, including the s uh, five novels and works of nonfiction, and he won the National Book Award in 1978 for The Snow Leopard. Peter Matheson. Everybody see my jacket? <laughs> I'd like to say, first of all, how honored and pleased I am um, by having Oren Lyons and Martin Garbus here tonight. Uh, Oren and I have known each other for a few years. We worked together on a crisis up at the Mohawk country, Athasosne. He's uh, one of the very best known. Thank you, Al. <laughs> He's one of the very best known uh, American Indian spokesmen around the country. He's a faith keeper of the Turtle Clan. 
the Onondaga tribe and the Six Nations, Haudenosaunee, and uh, a very eloquent fellow indeed. He also teaches at the University of Buffalo. He runs the Native American program there, and he used to teach at uh, Syracuse. He's an artist. He has a show on right now at the uh, <coughs> Nippon Club on West 57th Street. There's a show going on there right now. He's also a writer. I have one of his books, The Great the Hunting Story. So he's really a terrific artist and a very able man. So we're very lucky to have him here. Uh, Marty Garbus is also an extremely able man. He's right behind me here. Keep back. <laughs> and he's um, <coughs> defending me tomorrow. We're, being, we're going in for depositions in one of these lawsuits we'll be talking about. And he's, uh, he taught at Columbia and all over the place. He's Ready for the Defense is perhaps his best known book, and probably some of you know, know that. Maybe many of you do. Uh, he was the attorney for Lenny Bruce and for Timothy Leary and people like that at that time. And is one of the best libel lawyers, I hope, in the entire <laughs> <coughs> country. <laughs> but they'll, they'll be coming on in a moment. I, I'm, I'm uh, just going to speak, tell you a little bit about this book, how it came about. And, uh, and then um, Marty will discuss some of the legal implications of these um, <coughs> monstrous suits against it. And then Oren will talk about some of the implications of it from the Indian point of view and also about uh, Leonard Peltier, who's the main figure in the book, and tell us the significance of some of these things that are happening in Indian country uh, today. Uh, some about eight years ago, I guess, I started a series of articles that eventually came out after this book in another book called Indian Country. And I was out in California, south of uh, a place called uh, Lompoc, where there's a federal prison. I was working at Point Conception. And Archie Fire Lame Deer, who was a medicine man there for the local people, and also he's in Oglala, uh, he said, you really, you should be writing about a guy called Leonard Peltier. I'd never heard of Leonard Peltier at that time. And I said, well, who's he? And he said, well, he's an AIM warrior, and so on, so on, so on. So well, at that time, I wasn't so nuts about AIM. I'd been working a lot with uh, Indian people who were, had, who were rather wary of the American Indian movement. And I wasn't all that interested. But wherever I went, I began to hear about Peltier, the new crazy horse, the new sort of hero of his people. And uh, that he was a humble man who had done nothing since he was a kid but work for his people and make sacrifices and so forth. And that he was now doing two life terms for the murder, <coughs> alleged murder of two FBI agents on Pine Ridge South in South Dakota in 1975. And uh, it just happened that not long thereafter I was up in South Dakota. I was doing another article that came out later in the New York Times Sunday Magazine on the Black Hills on the uranium up there and on uranium leakage and on abuse of Indian people there. And while I was there in Rapid City, uh, through the Black Hills Alliance, there I was introduced to a man called Bob Robidoux. Uh, Bob Robidoux had been Peltier's partner and friend, and he had been indicted for the murder of the two agents with, with Peltier, along with two other young Indians. And uh, Bob was in town for the first time since he got out of prison. And uh, he took me down to Pine Ridge, and he sort of showed me showed me the scene, the, the so-called shootout scene where two agents and a young Indian guy had been killed, and uh, told me all about it and how that nobody had ever been prosecuted for the young Indian's death, but this monster Dunkirk war started to happen over these agents, and quite right too. Nobody, including the Indian people, approved 
of the killing of the agents. It was, it was very violent. There apparently was a shootout. These two guys were disabled, and somebody went down there and finished them off. And uh, nobody was happy about it, to put it mildly. Uh, it was very much too bad. <coughs> but as a result of this, uh, Peltier, who was the oldest AIM warrior on the scene, was the one the government really wanted. And their documents, even before they knew he was there, you see the documents going back to Washington saying, we want to lock Peltier into this case. Those are the exact words. They wanted to lock him into the case. Didn't matter whether he belonged in the case. They wanted to lock him in there anyway. And you, s you begin to see this sort of cumulative thing starting to happen against uh, Peltier setting him up. After the shootout, all the people involved, all the young Indian guys and, and young women who were there too, all got away, which the FBI, needless to say, was very embarrassed about, furious, considering they had hundreds of people around the perimeter of this very small farm. These guys all uh, got away, and that, I think, kind of increased the fury and the resentment and the bad feeling. And three of them um, were caught. One gave himself up on something else and was then in indicted later because he confessed in jail that he'd done it. Uh, it turned out later they decided not to believe this guy, but uh, <coughs> he was, in fact, eliminated. They didn't even try him. Um, the other two were caught in separate places. Peltier got away to Canada. And uh, he was brought back, he was finally caught about eight months later, and he was brought back on the testimony mainly of a woman named Myrtle Poorbear, who claimed that she was his girlfriend, and that Leonard had told her he had killed the agents. Uh, it turned out that um, <coughs> Myrtle Poorbear was a very pathetic young woman, totally mentally incompetent. This was agreed on by both sides. She'd been prepared for this testimony by an agent named David Price, who's one of the two who was suing us. And uh, Price had also had, had earlier been involved with a perjurious witness in a famous Banks Means case in 1973. So he's, he appeared to be a fellow who had bad luck in terms of getting involved with uh, <coughs> in not such great you know, people for prosecution. So I, I'm, I'm expressing myself rather hesitantly here since I'm <laughs> on trial. <laughs> but. Um <coughs> Not the way I'd like to express myself <laughs> about Mr. Price. At any at any rate, he produced this woman, or uh, I think in, in FBI parlance, it's supplied. He supplied Myrtle Poorbear to the prosecution, and on her affidavits that she wrote, her first affidavit said she was not on this farm at the time of the shootout. Her second affidavit, which is absolutely word for word like the first, but she changes it around and says, "I was there," and Leonard Peltier told me he killed the agents, <laughs> something like that. But she just transpose, they transpose words into the second one. And the third one was a very elaborate uh, version of the second one, which they then took to Canada, and on the basis of this and some other evidence, but really mainly this, Peltier was extradited. Well, the Canadians now, since this has all come out, they are really furious about it. And there's a big movement in the parliament now in Ottawa. They want Peltier back. They said that uh, he was cheated, that the evidence was fabricated, and uh, they, <coughs> they want him back in Canada and start all over again with a new trial or whatever. But they feel that he was that the U.S. government knowingly uh, had this guy extradited, knowing uh, knowing that the evidence was bogus. Well, the whole case, the whole trial, and the series of trials, uh, Roby Dew, the guy who took me to Pine Ridge, and Dino Butler, who was the other one, they were acquitted in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, even though the head of the jury, the jury foreman, admitted he said we would have acquitted these men even if we thought they had, they had participated in the killing of the agents. 
because the atmosphere on Pine Ridge was so nightmarish and ghastly, and there were literally hundreds of people killed in a, in a very small space of years, and the government, the FBI, who was responsible, paid no attention to this whatsoever. When the two agents were killed, of course, it was very different. There were helicopters and armored and you know, vehicles and stuff like that all over the place. But <laughs> until it before that, it wasn't so. Um, so anyway, uh, um, I won't go into it now because you see it's a very fat, thick book, but it's, uh, I think, an overwhelming uh, case that, uh, to show that Peltier, whether or not he killed or participated in the killing of agents, he was railroaded into jail. They really wanted him even before the trial began. They wanted him so badly that they had an agent named Fred Coward, and this testimony was really done seriously in court. Uh, he said that he'd seen Leonard on the scene, and it turned out he'd seen him from about I went to the place where he saw him, and I went to the, and I looking and I looked across with binoculars at the place where he's identified. He'd never seen Peltier in his entire life. He admitted that the group of men was running in the other direction. So from behind, from about a half a mile away on a dusty day, this coward made this miraculous uh, identification. And this was this was the level. This was the level of the evidence that was used to to convict him. Uh, a lot of a lot of the ballistics evidence has now been shown to be. As a result of that, Peltier has been appealing the, the verdict for several years. It's just about a month ago, his last appeal has been rejected. He'll go to the Supreme Court, but you can imagine what kind of luck he'll have there now. Um, this, this is the Eighth Circuit Court, three judges. Listen to the language here. We recognize that there is evidence in this record of improper conduct on the part of some FBI agents, but we are reluctant to impute even further improprieties to them. I mean, if you're going to fabricate evidence on one level, why would you hesitate the second time? This point was made by Judge Ross, one of these three judges himself, during one of Peltier's earlier appeals. He said that. Why would the FBI hesitate? If they cheat once, why wouldn't they cheat twice? And do you people realize what sort of reputation you have and so forth? So the, the judges admit that the FBI has kind of been cheating all along. And um, this kind of closes everything I wanted to read you. Oh yeah. Recognizing the difficulty of putting ourselves in the position of the jury, we hold that it probably would have not acquitted him. In other words, even though they admit that a lot of key evidence was withheld, that the ballistics evidence was very doubtful, that they were at the defense was not shown evidence and could not cross-examine the prosecution on evidence because they didn't have it. Recognizing that. One of our sources of discomfort with our decision is that although the defense was aware at trial of the inconsistencies, it was not able to demonstrate their importance. Now, wouldn't you think that would be enough for a new trial right there? I mean, I would think that half of that would be enough. It's a truly outrageous decision. And here's this guy in there for two life terms. Theoretically, he cannot get parole even until the year 2015. Now, Leonard is a guy that never, never, never whines. And he called up, he called up our house couple of days after this came through, and he didn't whine then. He said all the right things and all the brave things, but he sounded like he was speaking from the bottom of an ash can. He couldn't believe it. He'd read the decision and was just stunned, you know. So we, we haven't given up. We have, uh, even though the, the court things are going against us and everything else of the kind, we've had uh, big <coughs> meetings in Washington, D.C. We have 50 to 70 congressmen who are very interested in this case, who have written amicus briefs demanding a new trial for Peltier. We have the group in Canada as a potential movie and so forth. And uh, 
I hope you, everybody will acquaint themselves with this case. We really feel it's the sort of the Sakon Danzetti, uh, new Sakon Danzetti case of our time. Um, anyway, as a result of this big book that tried to draw attention to this case, I've been sued, and the Viking press has been sued, by Governor Janklow, William Janklow of South Dakota, for $24 million. He was later joined by Special Agent David Price, whose name has come up earlier in my talk, uh, for $25 million. So the total is $49 uh, million. Jankto is also suing Newsweek magazine. He's been, he's been thrown out in every uh, court so far. He's now appealing to the, S the Supreme Court for his final uh, test. It's the common charge in both books, and that wasn't really a charge. I mentioned the fact, which is a fact, that he was convicted in Rosebud Reservation Tribal Court of raping his 15-year-old Indian babysitter. And the governor felt that since it was on Indian reservation, he didn't even bother to show up. <coughs> and he ignored it. He said this is, well, of course, he denied it, too. And, uh, and he may be indeed correct. He probably, maybe, who knows. But anyway, he ignored this um, thing. But the fact is that he was convicted on this charge. And uh, I mentioned that. I also mentioned some other things that he didn't care for. I heard his feelings one way or another. And um, so they're, they're embarking on this uh, lawsuit together. Well, really they've already won. The, the, the paperback people could not come out with their edition once the, once the book had been sued. And it was really a paper deck edition, which was the ultimate aim of the whole damn thing. I mean, I wanted, the Indians can't afford this book. The most Indian people cannot afford that book. It's a great $20 book like that. And we were really gunning for a paperback edition that would have wide circulation, that would, a lot of students could see, and people all over the country could see who couldn't afford that a book there. Well, of course, there is no paperback edition. In fact, there's no hardback edition either. This book has become a collector's item, I guess. That you just can't get one anywhere. It's been, in effect, suppressed. And uh, there's no European editions either, even though Europeans are very interested in the case. Euro the, the Russians have sent 17 million letters, 17 million letters to President Reagan about Leonard Peltier. Now, how much, <laughs> how much have you seen in, in your papers about that? We don't talk about that, I guess, but that's, he, he's our, he's their sort of Sakharov, you know, he's just terrific. I don't know if that's good or bad, or if that's going to help him or not. In this climate, you know, it could be very unhelpful to him. But um, anyway, these suits are now underway, and uh, we're, we're going to, of course, contest them. They both, both Price and Janko have lost every co uh, contest so far in the courts, and yet they persist. They keep right on going. You have to assume there's a good deal of right-wing money behind them. They're just. Uh, I think it's more of an effort to discredit Viking and myself and so forth, and. Uh, really squash you know, freedom of speech. That's what uh, the law calls chilling First Amendment rights. And I think that's really what we're here to talk about tonight. So without further ado, I'll turn you over to Marty Garbus. Thank you very much. see in these lawsuits uh, the kinds of horrors that an author who writes about public events, who writes about matters in controversy, 
can't face. And what Price did, what the FBI did, what William Janklow did in this case, was designed to cause Peter Viking as much financial pressure, psychological harm, along with the suppression of the book as they possibly could. The first thing that Price did was to file a lawsuit against Peter, who lives in New York, and Viking, which publishes in New York, in a northern South Dakota town, knowing that the jury in a northern South Dakota town would not be sympathetic to the kinds of allegations that are made in this book. In fact, the northern South Dakota town in which it was made was one of the areas in which a great many of the confrontations had occurred. Excuse me. Okay. The northern South Dakota town in which Price filed his lawsuit was exactly the same place where a lot of the events that Peter writes about took place. And that town in the 70s and in the 60s had been a hotbed of resistance to the kind of ideas that the book talks about and a hotbed of resistance to the rights of Native Americans. It had been an area where the FBI had for years and particularly during Wounded Knee uh, and in the 60s and the 70s, been guilty of all kinds of transgressions. So the first thing they did then was to file the lawsuit forcing Peter and Viking to defend themselves in a state court in a South Dakota town. Now the state court, the governor of that court, uh, the governor of that state is William Janklow, who also files a lawsuit uh, in a South Dakota town. And by and large, Janklow had been elected, had been there for the last six or seven years, controlled and had appointed many of the very same judges that were now going to sit on these libel cases. So the first thing that happened with respect to the Price case was there was a fight for about half a year involving uh, energy, expense, time to get the case out of the state court of South Dakota on the grounds that it was improperly filed there. The case was dismissed. Then they refiled it in a federal court in South Dakota, and it took another six months or seven months to litigate that issue. The case was then dismissed, and the case is now pending in a Minneapolis court, and it will probably come to trial in 1987. The contours of that trial are awesome from a writer's viewpoint, from a publisher's viewpoint, and from the concerns about the First Amendment. Whereas the Westmoreland case involved a particular TV show, which perhaps 20 minutes of, uh, of work and a few lines that said certain things about Westmoreland, and that was a case that was designed to go for about a year according to Westmoreland. And the Sharon case involving Time Magazine was an article uh, of four or five pages, and that case was probably gonna go for half a year. Peter's book, has, according to the count of Price and Janklau, approximately 200,000 discrete facts. And what they are claiming basically, and we had this argument today at five o'clock, the claim against Peter basically is that this book was designed to go after Price and was designed to discredit the FBI. And what they can do in this lawsuit is go beyond the mere allegations about Price and go beyond the allegations uh, of the FBI and go into each and every fact that Peter sets forth in the book to show that he was shading or coloring 
or being deceptive as he presented the material. Now, in the book, Peter recounts the, the church committee that many of us remember what the FBI did or was accused of doing uh, at the time of Vietnam. I, he recounts Martin Luther, the incidents or the allegations concerning Martin Luther King, Fred Hampton, Mark Clark. He recounts, he brings up to date, a large portion of American history. It was the FBI's position today, expressed at 5 o'clock, that they can examine Peter on each of these things to show that Peter had a bias with respect to reporting all of the historical material, that that bias existed as he discussed price, and that that bias informs every single page of this book. So according to the judge in this case, if they were allowed to get away with that, you would have one of the longest trials in American history. You would be talking about a 600-page book. It is the FBI's position that they were unjustly and wrongfully accused by the church committee that they were unjustly and unwrongfully accused by these various books dealing with what they did in COINTELPRO and the whole host of books that have come out. And they were trying then, in this case, to litigate those issues, as I said, in a South Dakota town. We're now in Minneapolis. The judge said this trial cannot uh, be done in anything less than a year and a half. Now, the pressure on Peter as a writer then is to get up on the stand, and we start tomorrow morning in the deposition process, and say, that when I saw or interviewed this witness back in 1981, this is what he told me, this was my view of him, this is how, how I evaluated him. And the extent to which Peter puts credence in people like Russell Banks or Dennis Means and disregards or doesn't give the same kind of credit to people like William Webster or other people of the FBI, their position is to that extent he has been dishonest and dis and disingenuous. Now, there is a body of law that makes a distinction, and, and many of you, I think, will be surprised to know that, but it has developed in the area of libel law, that if I were to say, so, or if someone were to say something who was not totally reputable or of great standing, then that is of less value and is entitled to less belief than if someone who was of more standing makes the same kind of remark. So what we're getting into then in this trial in, in both of these trials, is every single judgment that Peter made many, many years ago about issues in controversy and matters in controversy. And it is the new vehicle, it is in this case and it is in other cases as well, it is the new vehicle to relitigate disputed issues in history. In the Janklau case, something near, as, nearly as evil was done. When the book came out back in May of 1983, Jan Clow called all of the bookstores in South Dakota, and he had people on his staff calling the bookstores. And he said, the allegations in that book about me are a lie. And then they asked him, what is it all about? Or it said, and he said, it's a lie, and if you don't take it out, you will be sued. And then, representing Viking, we got calls from bookstores throughout the country because his threats started to spread to the neighboring towns as well. And the booksellers, some of the mom and pop booksellers, some of the, the big chains, saw that there could be awesome suits threatened against them. And the question that they had is, what should they do? They didn't know anything about these facts. They found themselves getting caught up in a libel suit or the potentiality of a libel suit with awesome numbers, as Peter told you in his suit, his collection of suits at some $49 million, and they would uh, be named as defendants as well. Three booksellers in South Dakota 
refused to take the books off the stalls. Some of the booksellers did. Those three booksellers were then sued by Jan Clown, and it was only a few months ago, after two and a half years of litigation, that the suit against the booksellers was dismissed. But for two years, that stuck around in the courts at great pain and, and expense. In 1964, when the Supreme Court wrote about Times Against Sullivan and articulated for the first time uh, the, the present libel law, they never foresaw what the Burger Court and what subsequent events could do to libel law. You now have in libel law, and this book is the prime example of it, the way in which the legal system can be used to suppress information. This book is not alone in suffering these kinds of attacks. There are other books and other issues. For example, in St. Louis, the NAACP criticizes some builders, claims that they're racist. The NAACP is sued. The cost of defending that suit is awesome. The NAACP chapter in St. Louis closes down. You have Scientology, you have Synanon, you have the Liberty Lobby, you have a variety of groups that have funds, now using funds, using the libel law in a way probably that the Supreme Court back in 1964 never anticipated. Now, what are the particular allegations in this case? I think if you listen to exactly what is said, what they're claiming Matheson said, you realize the dangers of suits like this. The allegation that Peter makes in the Price case is that for a period of time, or the allegations that Peter makes in the book, is that for a period of time out of the reservation, the FBI was involved in certain tactics, suppression of evidence, intimidating witnesses, coercion, suborning perjury. And for those of you who remember, there was a trial in the early 70s out in Minneapolis, the Banks Means case. And that particular case is ultimately dismissed. It was an 11-month case against the so-called leaders of Wounded Knee. And the case is dismissed because primarily of the conduct of a man named David Price. The government had an extraordinary investment in the case. Some of you remember it was a, it was a front page case. And at the very last minute, a witness takes the stand. His name is Lewis Moveskamp. And he testifies basically that he saw everything that was going on within Wounded Knee. And he is prepared now to, after 11 months, to tie the chain with respect to the essential evidence that is needed against these various defendants. After he testifies, the defense approaches the, 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 the bench, and they discuss two things. One, that they have uncontrovertible proof that at the time that Lewis moves camps, says that he was seeing all these things, he was in fact in California, and unconvertible proof also that the government knew about it and had every reason to believe that he was lying. The government also withheld from the, camp, uh, from the judge, in that case Judge Nichols, the fact that uh, Lewis Movescams himself had been involved in a rape attempt while he was under the protection of the FBI waiting to testify in this particular case. And Judge Nichols feels that he should have been told about that because it turns out that in all probability, Lewis Movescams' testimony became more favorable for the government after the government was able to intercede and get the rape charges dropped. Judge Nichols, in an outrage then, issues a denunciation of Price, of the FBI, of the U.S. Attorney, and dismisses the case. And he writes an opinion 
which is then in all the law reports, and this is all front page. Price now sues Peter for reporting about those events, for reporting the denunciation, and for inferring or stating that Price did the very acts that Judge Nichols found he did. And Price's argument is, I never did it, the judge was wrong. And Price then seeks here to relitigate that issue, and he says that the reason that Peter has gone after him in this particular incident is to discredit him and the FBI with respect to everything that they have done in the country. And they take the issue then, they, they take the position that in the, in the course of a libel suit, you can relitigate essential parts of American history. In the Janklau case, the allegation that Peter had in the book was that Janklau had been involved in a rape attempt back in 1967. And he reports that. That allegation had been made back in 67. It had come up again during political campaigns. And then uh, it had become part of the common folklore, if you will, of South Dakota. It did not stop Janklau from being one of the most popular governors the state ever had. Uh, and it, it did not stop uh, Janklau from running this year for senator, uh, which he lost, but, but the assumption is he will be running again. But in a very powerful, persuasive, important political figure, important on the national scene in a variety of ways as well. Janklau then sues with respect to that allegation. He says that allegation is false. When the case is tried in a South Dakota court, it is Janklow on the stand who says it never happened. The woman who has been raped is dead. So the jury in South Dakota then, under the present contours of the case, only hears the governor say it never happened, and then, picking up on the rest of the price arguments, they make the allegation that Peter had a bias against government forces, against the FBI, against what was done. And therefore, he can't be believed with respect to any of, the thingle, any of the single things he says. The other allegations against Jan Clown, and I think many of you will be surprised to find that you can litigate these kind of allegations, given probably the sense that you all have about what is permissible and impermissible uh, in the printed word. The book also charges that Janklau is an antagonist of the environment. That's one of the elements he's suing on, claiming that that entitles him, along with the other elements, to some $24 million. The book states or quotes other people who have called Janklau a racist. These allegations are made during the course of political campaigns, and during the course of a political controversy, Janklau claims that as libelous. Janklau is, alleges that the allegations in the book which call him a bigot and which call him a self-proclaimed Indian fighter are equally libelous. Janklau has already filed six or seven lawsuits on the very same issue, and he has lost them. Now, the danger thus far in libel law is that you can keep, if you have enough money, you can keep filing suits again and again and again. And as of yet, the legal system hasn't devised a penalty for those who do it. So at the present time, Janklau is appealing the bookseller's case 
He is litigating the case against Peter and Viking. He is litigating a case against Newsweek, which was reporting on the controversy at about the same time that, that, that Peter's book came out. So I think not only in the kinds of materials that are being attacked, but also in the way that the libel law is being subverted, this, the, the attack on Peter is a landmark case, and, and this book and the issues is a landmark case in the United States with respect to the misuse of libel laws. Thank you. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, uh, how this affects Indian people and uh, probably how we give you a little bit on our perspective. First of all, you know, as a teacher at the University of Buffalo, uh, I looked upon this book as probably going to be in the later years after all of this uh, dies down, 50 years or so, as a definitive treatment on federal Indian policy in the 70s and the 80s. I think that's going to be extremely important in the future for other scholars and maybe uh, lawyers as well and also writers and authors and people who deal in delivering messages to people that this book is extremely important. It's important because it speaks to an issue that people are afraid to talk about, which is American Indians. They don't like to talk about American Indians because of guilt, because of contemporary problems, because of land claims, because of um, treaty rights, because of, as they perceive it, favoritism. We, speaking as a Native American, American Indian, we don't have people who will take a position on our behalf. Very limited indeed. Um, the issues that uh, involve our people are not of interest, of general interest to the public. And so when we do get on the front page, it generally is after a series of incidents like Wounded Knee, it usually takes some national incident, it usually takes some tragedy, and no one really looks at the long history leading up to this very moment, tragic style of life that our people endure in a lot of places. It runs the gamut from very conservative style of life, native life, traditional life, people who only speak Indian, to people like myself who are educated 
have degrees. And in between this great spectrum, we have nations and we have people who are interwoven in your life and in your style today. Uh, whether we like it or not, that's the way it is. From the point of reporting, Peter has helped us and presented our position several times, more than several times, in very serious confrontations, one up in the state of New York, if you remember, from 1979 to 1981, the longest siege in the history of this country. That was six years ago. Went on. Peter reported that. Interviewed people. Wrote about it. A book called Indian Country. He wrote about a lot of issues. He saw it. And it's people who have that kind of courage and interest to see principles as it relates to all people and not a people who's willing to deal in that arena becomes vulnerable, as you can see. The Indian problem, and I use that in quotes, has been relative to natural resources on Indian land. When they moved Indians en masse to Oklahoma, where Cherokees moving from Georgia to Oklahoma died by the thousands, moving them to this desolate country, solving, quote, the problem for a while until oil was discovered in Oklahoma. Now we had another problem. Indian had a problem again, so did the government. And so leading up to these particular moments, there's been confrontation. Now about three hours ago, up in uh, Bellingham, Washington, the Lummi fishermen burned three of their boats in protest against the IRS attempting to tax treaty fish. And they'll probably burn five more boats tomorrow. And they swear that they will not serve as slaves to the IRS or this government on treaty land and treaty fish and treaty rights. Now I don't know how you're going to, to react to that. Focusing point became a target because he was perceived to be the leader. And the American government has made this mistake again and again and again in trying to kill a leader, to kill the movement. It doesn't work that way. They don't understand how Indians operate 
and how maybe on this event, this person is the leader, but on another event, that person will be. And they evolve, they become important, and then they recede back into their lifestyles. And they talk in concert, and they talk in groups. And so, it's very difficult to kill an Indian leader because they work cooperatively in groups. Be that as it may, Leonard became the target, and as you just heard, is serving two consecutive life sentences. He is truly a political prisoner. There's little doubt in anybody's mind in Indian country that this man is a political prisoner. It was news to me, as Peter just mentioned, that 17 million letters came from the Soviet Union. But that would indicate, wouldn't it, that he's perceived to be a political prisoner by more than just the Indian people. He's important. He's important as a figure. He's important as, as a focusing point as to what the American people are going to do about it and about a lot of things. I believe the question is a matter of ethics. I believe the question is a matter of morals. And I believe the question is a matter of principle. I don't believe the question is a matter of documentation. I don't believe that it's a matter of having the right facts. I think the American public is facing tremendous onslaught on the moral nature of this country and what it purports to be. Uh, we are extremely sensitive to that because that is the only arena in which we can fight. And so that's where we place our fights. So we're very much aware of that. American Indian, as it was once said, is something like the canary down in the mines. When the air is bad, the canary will keel over and die. And in American politics, when the air is bad, the American Indian will keel over and be subject to it. And right now, there's onslaughts right across the nation from Lummi down to Big Mountain, up again to Michigan, where they're fighting the fishing war, all the way to the coast, New York State, the Oneida land claims, the Oneida land claims, the Ondaga claims, the Cayuga claims, all of these claims, these land claims, are real. Treaties are real. There's a tremendous onslaught now just to ignore that whole thing. The Attorney General of the United States, Edwin Meese, after looking at the Lummi Treaty of 1855, said in his opinion, the IRS, 
position was the better position. He said, I looked at the treaty and I couldn't see anywhere in there where it said the state or the federal government could not tax the fish. The Treaty of 1855. This is the Attorney General of the United States. This is who you depend upon for your justice. So when positions are taken like that, realistically, you have to reassess your position and how are you going to deal with this. I think, and I'm angry about the way they're treating Peter, and a lot of people like him, people who are willing to take a position, people who are willing to speak out. I think that you people have to defend him. I think that you have to speak out. After all, that's your business. And it's true that you can do a lot with words. It's true that you can do a lot with truth. And I know for a fact that being a leader, it's much better to deal in those aspects of confrontation than in the other aspects that they were talking about, that is guns and bullets, which we face and could face at any time. This is a reality in which we live because we insist on principle, because we insist on what is right, and because people like Leonard Peltier believes what the chiefs say is true and believes that what the people need is justice of that becomes a target very effectively put away. Dennis Banks and Russell Means have served their, given their pound of flesh as you say, served their time in prison and are both moving about somewhat somewhat less involved in international affairs. Careful, chastised. So what we're talking about is the spirit. We talk about the spirit of Crazy Horse. And I felt when they put his picture on U.S. stamp. I thought that was the greatest irony of all. They killed him. They ordered his death, and he was killed. And then, later on, they make a hero out of him. They make a hero out of themselves by putting his picture on this stamp. And they don't talk about the 26 medals of honor that was given out at Wounded Knee in 1890 for that day's work. 
26 Congressional Medals of Honor. And I thought that before they put Crazy Horse's picture on the stamp, they should apologize and rescind 26 Congressional Medals of Honor for the massacre in 1890 at Wounded Knee. No one writes about it. Haven't read one thesis. Haven't heard one doctoral, not one book. That's your business, not mine. Business of truth. We have, and I use the word collectively, a lot of problems, you and I. We've got the problem of survival in the next 100 years. We've got the problem of the ecological damage that has gone on and that our children are going to pay the price for already. We've got the problem of international confrontations between superpowers. You and I, we have this problem. And how do you deal with a problem when your internal machinery is rusty in the direction of justice? How can you mount a campaign for life when you don't have principle to campaign on? How do you learn what to do? It's like my grandfather said, you look behind you. You learn from experience. It's a great teacher, but it doesn't seem to have taught us anything. And I take this blame just as well as you do. You should. We're in trouble. We're in real trouble. Human race is in real trouble. Life proper is in real trouble. And if we're going to meet this problem, then we're certainly going to have to take some kind of a principle stand within our own country. So I think you should support Peter. Mr. Garver is going to take on this great challenge. He's going to take on all the machinery. I think you should call up tomorrow and find out just what the hell is happening out in Lummi. Why do they have to burn boats after they gave 13 million acres of land for the right to fish? Why do they have to burn boats today? These are the indigenous people. These are the original people here. And if you want to count taxes for the lands that we have given up, 
talk about fairness of payment, then total the taxes of any city that the Indians have given up and how you have quadrupled that money and you'll be taxed again. And they begrudge us our life. The treaty. Treaties are important. They're important to the integrity of the country. They're important to our survival. They're important to your survival. And I think if we're going to help people like Leonard, if we're going to help the justices of the United States to see straight, then you have to speak up. Because if you don't, no one will. Um, the other member of the Freedom to Write Committee with um, Mary Morris. Can you hear me? <laughs> no. Well, can you hear me now? I thought I had. Um, I'm going to close with just a couple of short pieces from uh, The Spirit of Crazy Horse, after which we're going to open uh, the event to all of you who I'm sure have many questions both about the libel laws and about what you can do for the book, for Pelchier and so on. Um, a sign of how few copies of the book exist is that I had to Xerox the things that I thought I might want to <laughs> read because there were only two copies for all of the people at Penn who were even involved in the event. Um, Peter begins each of his chapters with um, quotes from uh, Indians who've been involved in the various struggles. This is from Leonard Crow Dog, a Lakota. A reservation Indian is already well prepared to go to the penitentiary. Before he gets there, he has already practiced being in prison. And even off the reservation, many Indians are still having a barbed wire attitude. I try to teach my children and my people to get rid of the barbed wire mind. This is from Sitting Bull, a Lakota. What treaty that the whites have kept has the red man broken? Not one. What treaty that the white man ever made with us have they kept? Not one. When I was a boy, the Sioux owned the world. The sun rose and set on their land. They sent 10,000 men to battle. Where are the warriors today? Who slew them? Where are our lands? Who owns them? What white man can say I ever stole his land or a penny of his money? Yet they say I am a thief. What white woman, however lonely, was ever captive or ever insulted by me? Yet they say, say I am a bad Indian. What white man has ever seen me drunk? Who has ever come to me hungry and unfed? Who has ever seen me beat my wives or abuse my children? What law have I broken? Is it wrong for me to love my own? 
Is it wicked for me because my skin is red, because I am Lakota, because I was born where my father died, because I would rather die for my people and my country? And, and finally, a, a short piece from Robert Ropido Ojibwa. Um, he was mentioned earlier. I do not regret the part I played and received 10 years in prison for. On the contrary, I would have thought less of myself if I had not done that, which I am obliged to do, so that my people may live. Moreover, I would not hesitate to do it over again if and whenever the need arose. My only pain is in knowing that my people and family still suffer from our government manipulations and control over their lives and the lives of our future generations. The struggle of my people continues and will continue until liberation is achieved. Some of the things that we're doing here this uh, month in, in um, October 24th, 25th, and 26th, there's going to be a law symposium held at Columbia on the American Indian and the Constitution, and also as a, uh, an issue, economic development on Indian land. This is going to be held um, at the law school 24th, 25th, and 26th of this month, and the chief speaker is Justice Berger from the Supreme Court in Canada, who gave up his position in protest on the treatment of, of uh, Indians in his country. Does anybody want to begin by asking a question? Yes, in the back. There is stuff in the libel law about the right of a writer to present his point of view and how he presents facts. What has happened over the, basically if Peter writes or if somebody writes about Reagan and they say something which is libelous, then any writer is responsible if what he says is both libelous and if there is some kind of proven ill will or malice. That's basically the, the black letter aspect of libel law. In years past, they tried to develop an exception to that, something which is called neutral reportage, which means you can talk about public events and you can write history and you can say bad things about people. One of the things that has happened since the Burger Court has come into being is that 
if a public official were to accuse you of something, or if let's say Russell, uh, if let's say Orrin were to accuse you of something, and a writer were to write about it, then you should have more skepticism about what Orrin says because he's less a reputable person and you are more at risk if you quote him. For example, in Peter's book, he is discussing allegations against the government, against Janklau by uh, Banks and Means. And what he is doing, Banks and Means and other members of the American Indian Movement are making allegations against the governor. And what the court has done is developed a very stratified structure which says that, Peter, you are at greater risk when you quote Banks and Means, who says something about the governor, than if you quote the New York Times, who says something about the governor. So the courts have developed this kind of stratification, and in the area of libel law, it goes on in many different areas. Now, in Peter's book, when the book came out, we were sensitive to all of the libel problems. So one of the ways in which the libel problems in the book were handled, because Janklau having sued as much as he had, the libel law having changed as much as it had, anyone knew that a book like this could be a provocation. So at the end of Peter's book is the following note. It says, although this book argues and supports the cause of the traditional Indian people and their allies in their long struggle with the U.S. government, I originally wished it to include as many views as possible on both sides of the question. I discovered, however, that federal judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement personnel are rarely willing to comment on a case that is still being comment contested. Also, their essential views are everywhere throughout the text, in field reports, memos, trial transcripts, court's rulings, and many other documents. And any attempt to balance the argument with the official comment would sink an already long book under the weight of rhetoric and repetition. So what Peter then does is he refers to the Webster report, an FBI report, which basically exonerates all of the FBI men and basically says, or at least the Webster report, if you read it and believed it, would say that everything that Peter says in the book is nonsense. Now, the law of libel is such that when you write about controversial events, you nearly have to give balance to the issues. If you don't give balance to the issues, you, you can then be accused of distorting it and distorting events. They take the position that what this book is a piece of, and, and in their terms, this has a pejorative term, advocacy journalism, and that because of Peter's commitment to the issues here of the traditionals, to ecological issues, he became so distorted, and in order to make his point, what he did is he focused on an easy devil, the devil being the FBI, the devil being the government. So there now is, in the United States, in the law of libel, a heavy burden on writers to achieve a certain kind of balance that to me, and I think one doesn't have to argue in this room, is totally inconsistent with the First Amendment. And there, there, there is that burden at the moment. Does that answer the question?
with respect to the question of illiteracy, what this book does, wh what has happened as a result of this lawsuit is, is exactly what has been said here. The book cannot be found. Now, from a publisher's viewpoint, publishers in this particular case, there are already four lawsuits. As I said, the two Price filed in South Dakota, which were dismissed. There's one alive in Minnesota, and you have Janklaus sued alive in South Dakota. It was clear that if a paperback house took this, the FBI, which is probably supporting the, the Price lawsuit, would file lawsuits in other places in the country. So as a result of the libel law, this, this book was stopped. You had a newspaper called The Point Raised Limited out in California. They did an expose of, of Synanon. There was a $1.9 million judgment against the newspaper. They went out of business. Scientology has over 120 libel suits throughout the country. There was a book 10 years ago called The Public Burning, which some of you may remember, by Robert Coover. It talked, it had his view of American history, and it put people like Roy Cohn, Irving Kaufman, in Times Square, uh, uh, the, you, the fictitious event being the, at that point, or the way it works in the book, the, the execution of the Rosenbergs. And it was a rather long book. 18 publishers turned it down back some 10 years ago. Ultimately, Viking published it. The book was published uh, originally. They had to devise a publishing stratagem for it. They published it uh, before the reviews went out, before, before anybody could see it, in the hope that the book would be out there before the lawsuits would start. It was a courageous position by Viking then. I tell you now, nobody would touch that book. And the, the real issue here is to what extent the lawsuits like this affect these kinds of books. We spent two hours today with the Price lawyers trying to categorize this book. If you categorize the book as investigative journalism, then Peter is entitled to less protection than if the book is categorized as history or literature. In a case that was decided about a year ago, Woodward, who had done all the president's men writing for the Washington Post, an expose of a man named Tavalieris, the Post was punished because they should have known that the writer who wrote the story was a sensationalistic journalist, an investigative journalist, and therefore they're at risk because investigative journalists, by definition, don't have the depth and the texture of people who write other kinds of material. So you get into this area into insane discussions, and we did it for two hours as to how do you describe this book. And Elizabeth Sifton, Peter editor on this book, just, just indicated her answer, the, the, the refusal, but it was after a long struggle, to allow it to be put into categories. Now, a very funny thing, when you file a book, let's say, in the Library of Congress, the Library of Congress gives it categories. When a publishing house puts it out, a publishing house in its ad will say, this is investigative journalism. In fact, on the book jacket of Peter's book, it's called a superb piece of investigative writing. So therefore, you, have to, you, you spend an enormous amount of time now in these libel suits on these kind of semantics. The penalties for publishing companies to publish controversial books like this become awesome. And a very interesting discussion, but it becomes too, uh, becomes too complicated, is the effect of insurance companies on this. Because if you can only publish with insurance, then ultimately what's happening now, insurance companies are saying that if you publish this book, if you write this book, we will not cover it, and we will not cover other books. And you're getting a process where insurance companies are called early in to make decisions about what should be published and what is said. 
Now, when they wrote libel law, Black, Douglas, and back in 64, no one ever conceived of giving insurance companies that kind of censorious powers. But in 1986, you had over 30 judgments thus far of over a million dollars. So that you had the, the publishing industry, the media industry, is at risk. For every Westmoreland or Sharon where the plaintiff doesn't get a nickel because the defendants are willing to spend extraordinary amounts of money, you have numbers of other high, extraordinary amounts of other cases where you're getting settlements of five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars rather than litigate this. For Viking and Peter, or basically in this case the insurance company, to litigate this case thus far over these years has been extraordinarily expensive. Any publishing company, when faced with putting out five, six, seven hundred thousand to defend cases throughout the country, is, go is going to be censorious of books. So what, what you're doing is you're getting into all the complicated questions of the legal system, the cost of the legal system, and what you have now as a result of decisions is a new form of censorship. Uh, when this country came into being, the whole idea of seditious libel was stopped. You couldn't send people to jail. The theory was if you sent people to jail, you'd stop books. The kinds of pressure that people like Peter or publishing companies face, these awesome financial costs and spending months in foreign places, and you can just see in the price case, if you're going to litigate the church report, what happened in Wounded Knee, and six, seven months of trials, you're going to have to pull up people who were involved in disputes 15, 20 years ago. The amount of work, the amount of pain is awesome. So these libel suits are an extraordinarily effective way of stopping certain things from being said or printed. And this case is kind of the tip of it. It's the first case. It's the most awesome case. It's the most awesome case because a publishing company or any of these people do it in 50 states and because here the FBI is smart enough to know exactly where Peter and the publishing company are most vulnerable. And that's in South Dakota. And what that would then mean would be civil rights suits in certain kinds of states and they can pick and choose by and large, because at some level, to sue in Minneapolis or South Dakota for all these things. I think there are two different issues. I think one has to do with Leonard's case. And I think with respect to Leonard's case, Peter and Oren have spoken to that. That's a case I think that, that one ought to be concerned about to deal with, to be conscious of. With respect to libel law, there are now, there is now legislation uh, in, in the Senate and in the House. The, the likelihood is it will not be passed. I hate to be pessimistic, but basically this is judge-made law. At this point, Reagan has appointed an extraordinarily high percentage of federal judges. So I think that you're going to see libel law get worse before it gets better. And I don't know if there's anything much that one can do. Well, this is, excuse me. I'm sorry, I missed that. Uh huh. I think maybe you came in a little late, and maybe I ought not to do Maybe we can talk about it afterwards. There are many bills. That there's uh, Congressman Schumer ha has a bill before his committee. There is something called the Reporters Committee in Washington, 
The ACLU, both in Washington and New York, is submitting legislation and is heavily involved, heavily involved with it. The likelihood of the passage of any of that legislation, some of which comes from the Association of American Publishers, I mean, is nil. It will not be passed, I don't believe. Uh, I think that the only way the law can change is, is through judge-made law, and that seems to be going the wrong way right now. And we'll and with the two new appointees to the Supreme Court will go even more dramatically the wrong way because both of these justices have spoken out clearly and forthrightly with respect to their views of libel law. Every time Viking would send out another book, it faced the possibility of a suit in another jurisdiction. So by stopping the distribution of the book, at some level, it stopped suits. If a paperback house were to take the book and distribute it through 50 states, they would face increased suits. It does not in any way diminish their liability in the suits that already exist. Well, Janklau was still threatening people in South Dakota. It took two the, the decision that came down with respect to the booksellers was some two years, uh, came down two years after the, the uh, Janklau's first series of threats. So for two years, the booksellers in South Dakota had a case outstanding against booksellers where they could have been held liable for serious damages. So no bookseller there was about to do it, and you have the neighboring communities, all of whom knew that Janklow uh, was more than anxious and willing to sue. And the danger is that these people have the funds to sue, and it is easy to pick and choose the people who can least afford to defend the lawsuits, the mom and pop, you know, the, the smaller booksellers. They're totally vulnerable. And of course, the large booksellers are not rushing uh, to be uh, defendants in these lawsuits either. In fact, the people who refused to take the bookstores off the shelves in South Dakota were precisely the small people who refused to be pushed around. The answer is yes. Rule 11 is a technique in the federal court where you accuse the plaintiff and his lawyers of bad faith, harassment, chilling effects, and the answer is yes. Thus far, it has been interposed in a few libel cases. Thus far, there has been not been a case where it has been awarded in a libel suit. Uh, it has been filed. We, I filed it 15 years ago in a lawsuit brought by that very same Tavalieris against Harper's Magazine. That lawsuit ultimately went away. So yes, we've tried it. It has never come to fruition. First, you have to prove that the libel suit is, is, is a bad suit. So here, you would first have to litigate and defend the libel suits before you could even get to that issue. Well, 
in this particular case, uh, other countries refused. Uh, for example, in England, the libel laws are uh, more restrictive than they are in the United States. I mean, it's different. You don't get the high amount of damages, but you have less freedom to say things. And Janklau then was threatening to file suits all over. Now, there has been a book, for example, how do you deal with this? The, the publishers had an option. Peter had an option. There's a book out now called Endless Enemies, again, a Viking book, by an author named Jonathan Quitney. And that book is critical of certain aspects of American foreign policy. If I were to hold the book up here to you today, a man named William Love sued. Uh, in the book, he's uh, the original book, he's called a CIA agent who was involved in some uh, the overthrowing of the government in Iran. Now, if you were to pick up that book, you would see that there are chunks of the book that are left out. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're Mr. Love. That's the lawsuit. <laughs> Have I correctly described it? I'm sorry. The question was, when I wrote the book, did I expect something like this to happen? And the answer is no. Uh, and we um, had every reason not to think it would happen because that we had the very good libel attorneys check it out. And not just, and not just uh, Marty and his firm, but others were also asked, just who asked to read it as friends. And um, I'm a little late. Um, but anyway, does that answer your question? I, d I did not expect it. W w I knew that w I was on, I mean, we knew we'd have to give it a really good libel read. I was saying some tough stuff in there, no question about that. And I also knew that Governor Jankler was very litigious. He's famous for suing at the drop of a hat. He's always got four or five suits going, which, which up until now he's succeeded in b bullying people out of commenting on his behavior. Well, we felt that because it had b been a, a court judgment, the court he chose not to recognize <laughs> in his arrogance, but it was a, an official judgment of the Rosebud Reservation Tribal Court uh, under Mario Gonzalez, who is a, a judge at the bar. And on that basis, it's a legal document. Now, the fact that Janklo, with his racist, I'm, excuse me, I'm not What? It 
did. I was very offended. That's the only review, and I've written nearly 20 books. It's the only review I've ever answered. And I didn't answer to defend my own book either. I answered because I, this is Alan Dershowitz, the defender of Klaus von Bülow. Yeah. <coughs> and need I say more? But <laughs> anyway, uh, in that, if the FBI had paid him to write that review, he could not have done more damage to Peltier. It was a really very insidious, bad review. It was so bad, in fact, that a very funny episode took place. About 15 or 20 young Indians <laughs> invaded his office and, and, and threatened to scalp him. And apparently he was right back up against the wall <laughs> and uh, was calling the cops and everything. And I had a first-hand report from a friend of uh, Oren's and mine, Winona LaDuke. She was a, a, a ringleader in this group. <laughs> And uh, she said that uh, all these people were really big, you know, really husky, and Dershowitz was terrified. But anyway, I wrote, a, I wrote a letter of response and contempt, and I think it's also unique, and let me just say this about the, uh, the times where I was really offended there, was because uh, having done that, I wrote a letter, I think a non-shrill letter of response, saying that this was mistaken, that in effect, Mr. Dershowitz really didn't know what he was talking about <laughs> when it came to Indian matters. Uh, and they deleted two key lines. And uh, apparently, we were told, um, Dershowitz saw the letter and he couldn't live with a couple of those lines, including the one which I s in which I said he didn't know what he was talking about. Well, putting aside Dershowitz's motive, which I'm glad to talk to, I'd like to tell you about the consequence of the Dershowitz review in this case. There is a, what you then have is a, to some extent a justification according to Price and Jank, Lauther, their lawsuit. Basically, what Dershowitz claims is that the people that Peter relied on were not worthy of belief. So Dershowitz comes to the party with the title of a professor of law at Harvard, having written a front-page review for the New York Times. So the allegation in the lawsuit then is what Price and Janklau are saying from this side of the political fence is also agreed upon by a defense lawyer who writes for the New York Times. So to some extent, the New York Times, Dershowitz, Harvard, that combination of things becomes a force in this particular case. What they then say is here is someone else who basically reach the same conclusions that we do. My view based, I mean, I know Alan's politics are just very different than the politics of this book, and it's a purely political book review. I, I could say less kind things about him in, in other ways, but it's unnecessary. Well, it's a very political <laughs> 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 What is the politics that involves the claim that Let me just add one yeah. further point. Well, I think it's the 
One of the one of the questions that came up today in the case with respect to reviews were the the, the book drew 30 favorable reviews and the Dershowitz review and some reviews, let's say, that were middling. I think it's fair to say that of all the reviews, Dershowitz's was the least sympathetic, the most attacking, and clearly because of where it was, drew the greatest amount of attention. So one of the issues today in the case was the extent to which Viking and Peter contacted other reviewers in order to uh, get good reviews to balance off the Times review. I don't think reviewers or the New York Times ever appreciated the fact that they then find themselves used in lawsuits like this when you have, this is not the Times, but that is now the consequence of this. So that the Dershowitz review in the context of this case is a very powerful document. somebody on your staff, uh, I won't say who because I can't remember who, <laughs> but uh, there was a rumor kind of that Dershowitz did see my letter, and there's no question because I have the original, I'd be very happy to send you the original copy and the one you published, uh, that there were two key and I thought, in fact, very well written, well composed lines. <laughs> Well, I can I can prove it to you, and I'll show, I'll send you both versions. So. Um, back here in the goes in and says, this is what I saw and this is what I reported. But if he goes in and reports a legal event and distorts it, then that privilege is not there. So the claim here is the way that Peter reported the Wounded Knee trial, the church committee, was deliberately slanted to discredit both the FBI and David Price. Defense Committee, and uh, I have no reason to doubt it because I do know that uh, back at last Christmas, uh, Peltier was a big issue in Russia, so much so that Time magazine commented on the, <coughs> the importance he seemed to have gotten over there. As I say, we're not so sure whether in this country that did him good or, or harm. Whether 17 million people actually wrote or not, I don't know, but they seem to think that they did. Where they came by that figure, I don't know. 
But there is rumor of a. I'm finished. <laughs> All right. Next time, I'll do better. We're, we're going to take two more questions, and then there is wine back there, and you can continue talking to the people up here informally. Um, yes. This meeting really wasn't called. It'd be much better, I think, if we could figure out a way to help Peltier, and there is a way. Uh, in my case, really, what we really want is that we're very confident of the issue and of the whole case, of, of Peltier's case and of our uh, standing in regard to libel in regard to this book. We believe the book is, is fair, and all the court decisions so far have borne us out. Um, so what we really want is attention to it. So far, there has not been very much. There's been. Uh, you know, we need we need this case to be more publicized. I personally think it's an outrage. <coughs> Martin certainly does, and certainly everybody in Indian country does. A lot of other people who know about the situation and not only the the book but the law case and so forth. So, uh, talk it up, learn about Peltier, and learn about this whole situation. That'd be the best help we could give. I'll, I'll take a last question from Rose Dyron, who's the co-chair of Freedom to Write. Certainly, to the degree that we cannot bring this book out again, we cannot do a paperback edition and so forth, this will certainly be damaging to uh, Peltier. He, his, the defense committee and his legal force, uh, they, have, they get half or rather more of the proceeds from the book. So it means that they have to operate on a very, very limited budget <coughs> if the book doesn't come out. And if we could get a, a, a paperback edition out and a European edition and a movie, Needs to say would help them a great deal, and also more attention. As I say, we do have these congressmen, a great number of congressmen. That's a very large number, by the way. That is news right there. It's we, at one point we had about 70 congressmen when we had a hearing in Washington. That is over, you know, about 500 altogether, I guess, aren't there? So it's well over 10 percent of the Congress. That's a large number of people, and an equivalent number in Parliament in, in Canada. So that's a lot of very serious people who believe this man deserves a new trial. So I think that's, yeah, I think so, very definitely. I just, I just, I just want to thank all of you for coming and say there seems to be still a lot of questions in the room and I think those of you who want to stay and ask questions, I think do you mind answering more questions up here? A little more or no? Peter? Oh, I guess there's a court date tomorrow. But anyway, why don't you have wine? I guess we can't continue with questions. Okay.